Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be talking with Max Ward about his book, Thought Crime, Ideology and State Power in Interwar Japan, released by Duke University Press in 2019. Thought Crime analyzes the trajectories and transformations of the implementation of Japan's 1925 peace preservation law from its conception in the early 1920s until the early years of the 1940s. The law, the peace preservation law, which began as a state effort to tamp down radicalism and dangerous thought, in other words, mostly Marxism, and preserve and protect imperial sovereignty, etc., spawned a massive apparatus populated by both state and non-state actors dedicated to ideologically converting and rehabilitating thought criminals. In addition to being a case study of the nature and ideology of punishment and repentance for thought crime in late imperial Japan, uh, and the way in which the emperor functioned as a sort of ghost in the machine animating the pursuit of political repression. Ward's book also provides insight into the policing of ideological threats and its relationship to national identity politics. Thought Crime follows the evolution and transformation of the peace preservation law and its attendant social and institutional structures from these uh, 1920s interwar attempts to repress dangerous thought to a massive system of ideological conversion. And finally, uh, Ward follows the history of the peace preservation law into uh, the consequences of its integration into practices of total mobilization during wartime. So, Dr. Ward, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today about your book. Um, Before we get into the book itself, I wonder if you could uh, answer what's become sort of a traditional question here at the beginning, which is how you became interested in the project that became this book. Yeah, that that takes us all the way back to my undergraduate studies and towards the end, I was interested in uh, radical politics in uh, Europe uh, in the 1930s as an undergraduate and did a thesis on the Spanish Civil War and basically libertarian socialists and anarchists, uh, as well as, you know, of course, them fighting the fascists and the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War. And so I was taking... Uh, some classes in the last semester of my undergraduate studies and doing some readings on theories of fascism. And one of the things that I kept on noticing in a lot of the works that we were reading were these were works by Europeanists who were trying to theorize a general category of fascism. And there would always be some kind of qualification or footnote or endnote saying, you know, something was happening in Japan at this time. And yes, there was the tripartite pact. And yes, there was the anti-common term pact. And yes, there were allies and et cetera, et cetera. But we don't really know how to fit Japan into this. Um, And at the time, I had traveled to Japan and I had some friends that I was communicating with. So just just by that kind of personal connection I had – I had interest that kind of piqued my interest. So I was asking the Europeanists that I was studying with at the time, so what gives with Japan at this time? And they said, we're not specialists in Japan and we can't answer that. So that, you know, this is for something for you to pursue. And it was my last semester and I was graduating. So uh, ironically, I kind of stumbled upon the topic that really uh, inspired me uh, in my last semester and so after I graduated, I continued to read English language studies of uh, Japanese history, particularly around the 1920s and 30s and about kind of the political situation and social movements and radical politics in Japan and uh, decided to prepare for graduate school. So I had to go back and do some uh you know, immersive language studies. And I went back to UC Berkeley to audit some courses with Irv Shiner and Andrew Barche and worked with Alan Tansman at the time to kind of get uh, a handle of what was happening in the 20s and 30s. And um, through my readings, I kept on coming across this term that was called tenko, or what could be translated as ideological conversion, when leftists uh, mainly communists who had been arrested, uh, gave up their political affiliations. And they basically renounced, you know, revolutionary politics or whatnot under possibly state pressure or pressure from, you know, their family or whatnot. And it was just this interesting question. And uh, once I had gr- entered graduate school, I didn't think I was going to pursue that question. And I was exploring some other topics, but I kept on coming back to this question and was thinking that uh, it still had 
uh, a lot of potential uh, to be explored and, and rethought. And I was actually quite unhappy with some of the kind of explanations of the phenomenon and what we actually mean by this term Tenko. So by the time that I was uh, developing a dissertation project, um, I, you know, relented to basically this topic that, that had stuck with me and, uh, and decided to pursue that. So that's, that's how the project, um, uh, developed. Yeah, that's really cool. I like the way that, um, it's sort of, you know, you, you, you came to it from, uh, a place outside of Japan and sort of worked your way in to finding something that was really particular that you were sort of dissatisfied with um, in the in the scholarly literature. Um, I, I know for myself, I often find that to be extremely motivating. Um, so I want to start, I want to do something a little bit different than the, the way we usually, uh, or at least I usually run the podcast here. I want to kind of start with the end of your book, if you don't mind. Um, you have this, this really fantastic quote um, in the book that I just wanted to sort of start with. So there's a justice ministry manual, um, which outlines the uh, five stages of ideological conversion that would be used to assess and guide political criminals in integrating into society. Um, and you point out that this sort of five-step formulation um matches pretty well with the increasing ideologization of conversion that took place since the early 1930s. Um, I wonder if you could just, and this is a little weird, but do me a favor and read the five stages for us and then kind of explain how they fit with your uh, top line analysis about how the peace preservation law evolved from implementation in 1925 until Japan's wartime mobilization in the 30s and early 40s. Sure. So this comes from a 1937 Justice Ministry Manual. Um, it was drafted by the chief of the Re- Rehabilitation Bureau um, by the name of Moriyama Takeichiro. And what he was doing was he was trying to formulate guidelines that would be implemented in a new system across Japan um, that was to oversee political criminals who at this time were being called thought criminals that had started a process or had completed a process of what was called ideological conversion. And, and basically, as you can imagine, with, some, with something uh, as amorphous as that, you would have officials uh, in prisons throughout Japan trying to figure out how do we assess when a political criminal that had been arrested because of some kind of danger that they posed is safe enough to be released into society, and, and how do we assess that? <clears throat> so these are the five stages that Moriyama Uh, writes in this manual. The first stage is one who accepts and advocates the correctness of Marxism. Uh, And this stage, of course, is the non-convert or what was called the hitenkosha. The second stage is one who, although uncritical of Marxism, rejects a liberal individualist position. The third stage is one who is in the process of developing a critical position toward Marxism. The fourth stage, one who recognizes and grasps the Japanese spirit, and this is the Nihon Seishin. And the last and final stage, which is basically going to be the gauge of what was truly an ideological convert or a tenkosha, was, quote, one who has mastered the Japanese spirit and is able to actively put it into practice, unquote. So this, and, and you're right to point out that this, these five stages really do kind of index um, the development of this policy that I trace throughout the uh, book. And, and this is why I put it in the, in the last chapter, the head of the last chapter, chapter five. Um, the first three stages, so the non-convert and then, you know, one who's starting to develop some kind of critique of Marxism is what you would call uh, the development of the partial uh, uh, ideological convert. So somebody who's, you know, just developing this. And, you know, the peace preservation law at the beginning was implemented to suppress an organization, namely the Japanese Communist Party, to basically just to suppress organizational activities. They were going to do that through arresting its members and its leaders, and then you know develop policies in which these people renounced the party or discarded with their party affiliation. But we see in, the, in these five stages that it actually turns into a process of reflecting on thought and belief. 
um, particularly at stage three, one who is in the process of developing a critical position towards Marxism. It's no longer about one's affiliation to an organization, but it's one's, you know, ability to basically critique, uh, you know, an ideology or whatnot. So this is again the partial, ten, the partial convert or the Jun Tenkosha. By four and five, however, it's not about discarding or negating one's belief or breaking with a party or whatnot. It actually starts turning into something more generative and productive. Uh, stage four, one who recognizes and grasps the Japanese spirit, as well as stage five, which is one who has mastered this Japanese spirit and is able to actively put it into practice. And again, here, you know, it's no longer about preventing the criminality of what political position this person may have held or the potential for them to carry out some kind of illegal political activity. But now it's really a justice system that's trying to assess the degree to which someone has identified as a national imperial subject and and how they're going to put that into practice. And as you can imagine, you're going to have justice officials then asking, particularly with stage five, how do we assess this? What does it mean for somebody to master the Japanese spirit? And what does it mean? How do we assess uh, how they are able to actively put it into practice? And so this creates a whole other kind of set of issues that gets worked out uh, after these guidelines are issued. Yeah, and I like the sort of transition here from um, in stages two and three, the negatives, right? Somebody who is beginning to reject and critique um, to a positive, recognize, grasp, and then in stage five, master and practice. So there's this sort of, you know, moving away from uh, one pole and toward, you know, the pole of evil over there with Marxism, although I'm not sure how liberal individualism and Marxism are no, exactly. <laughs> logically connected, but that's, that, yeah. that's, that's not, the, not the issue for today. But then, you know, moving toward this sort of positive um, and, of course, somewhat at least here ill-defined thing called the Japanese spirit. Um, so with that kind of in mind as the the sort of big picture of what's happening, I want to unpack this chapter by chapter, starting with chapter one, uh, Koktai and the Aporias of Imperial Sovereignty, the passage of the Peace Preservation Law in 1925. So in this chapter, um, you examine the creation of the Peace Preservation Law, uh, especially the inclusion of the troublesome term Koktai, um, as the bill's object of protection, um, defining a political crime as forming or, or, or uh, joining an organization that had the intention to, in quotes, uh, alter the koktai. So can you tell us about the bill itself um, and its invocation of koktai and sort of what that meant? Sure. The, the This chapter, I had a, a few objectives in mind. Um, one would be for the, the scholars of Japan would immediately recognize this term kokutai as kind of this endearing, enduring, I should say, not endearing, even though that was actually probably part of its uh, ideological appeal in the 1930s, but this kind of enduring uh, problem as far as trying to define both what it was as just an idea, but also how it was being used in the 1930s and 1940s. And so kokutai uh, is conventionally translated as national polity. Um, some people see it as meaning something more towards a national essence, something that's like timeless and, you know, uh, uh, spiritual. Um, some people, Tsurumi Shinsuke sees it as a, as a term that was used as kind of an amuletic term, you know, that once one enunciated kokutai, they, they had kind of protected themselves from some kind of rational debate because everybody would know what kokutai meant, even though no one could actually define it. Um, so with that in mind, and then, and then trying to think about, okay, well, here's an instance in which this term was actually used within a law. Let's try and kind of like think about these, these questions that have plagued uh, Japanese uh, scholars, scholars of Japanese intellectual history, trying to think about this term kokutai. How did uh, justice officials and home ministry officials come to use this term in a law that was directed against uh, suppressing a communist movement. So the the first thing to know, of course, is that this is passed in 1925. One can imagine that, you know, coming out of World War I, there's the Bolshevik Revolution. There's the 1918 Rice Riots, which was the largest nationwide riots in uh, Japanese history over the inflation, the inflationary price of rice. 
There was troubles in Japan's colony. You have the March 1st movement in Korea. You have the May 4th movement uh, in China, basically a Japanese boycott. Um, And you have continuing economic turbulence throughout the 20s. And justice officials are looking at the situation and thinking that it's in these kind of unsettled times that uh, there may be an appeal to communist internationalism. And sure, of, of course, their their fears were confirmed when they start finding out uh, after the fact, of course, that uh, certain Japanese radicals had been meeting with uh, you know agents of the communist international, whether this was in uh, Shanghai or other places, or at least just identified with, or were trying to figure out what the revolution and what the Soviet Union was. And justice officials were quite concerned about this. And for them, what communist internationalism, the the danger that this posed was, unlike earlier forms of political radicalism, they really saw communist internationalism as as posing a, a truly a ideological threat. So one that was not about just basically publishing something and distributing that or forming an organization trying to carry out, let's say, some kind of like terroristic or riotous or revolutionary kind of practices, but that there was something um, truly ideological about this. Uh, And that basically existing anti-radical laws um, that had been on the books for a while did not cover this new threat. So they kept on, you know, in their writings, in the official writings, they keep on talking about this, this particularly new threat. They don't necessarily understand it, but but they to them it, it's it's something that uh, is is of a new essence or a new character, and so they start working together. These again, these are the officials within the Justice Ministry and the Home Ministry that are trying to figure out how to meet this new threat. They come up with a anti-radical bill in the, in 1923 um, that's really kind of poorly written, and and the people who go to the imperial diet to present it for legislative scrutiny are are kind of unprepared. They can't define to the legislators what c- communism is, what Bolshevism Bolshevism is, and they also can't, and most importantly, um, can't explain why current existing laws against political radicalism don't already cover uh, revolutionary activities that would be inspired by communist internationalism. So this 1923 bill fails, and justice and home ministry officials go back to the drawing board and they keep on working on this. And this is when they come up with the term Kolkatai, and they they kind of collapse a bunch of different things here. You know, at first they're thinking... People who are threatening the existence of the state, people who are threatening the constitutional legal order of the empire, people who are threatening or calling for the overthrow of the emperor, um, etc. And by 1924, you have all these various things kind of collapsed in this term Kolkatai, even though it's not really defined necessarily what Kolkatai is except what it indexes, and it's and it's all these fears. It's also about losing um, maybe a colony of Japan's empire, that there's going to be some claim towards losing the you know uh, their sovereign claim over uh, Korea or Taiwan. So this is how they come to it. And when it comes time for the legislative scrutiny of this bill in early 1925, uh, the officials that are presenting it say this is a constitutional term. It doesn't come from the constitution. It's not used in the Meiji constitution of 1889. But when asked to define what Kukutai is, they continually refer to the fact that the Meiji constitution designates the location of sovereignty in the unbroken line of emperors ages eternal. And so in an interesting kind of rhetorical move, they use this term, Kokotai, but again, not coming from the Constitution, but continually trying to uh, define it in these terms. And so basically, I use this as an opportunity to not only kind of trace the debates um, about this term's categorical function in the law, all the critiques, as well as the home and justice ministry officials struggling to kind of you know, answer these critiques and the drafts that they uh, write up in response, but also to to reflect on basically uh, critical theories of sovereignty as well, that there's a fundamental ambiguity in the very notion of sovereignty and the authority that it describes, whether it's uh, legal 
whether it's political, its relationship to a constitutional order. Of course, this goes back to um, theorists such as Carl Schmitt and questioning of the relationship between, you know, violence, founding violence, revolutionary violence um, to a legal order. Um, and, and yet, so in 1925, this bill actually passes, even though it was uh, strongly scrutinized and, and did, and the, the term Kolkata did face a lot of critiques within the imperial diet. It, it does pass in 1925. And so basically this is the first uh, time that you have Kolkata is kind of a, a used in a central law and it's going to, you know, basically generate all these interpretive questions over its categorical function in the law once justice officials now actually have to implement this law as an anti-radical law. Yeah, so then in the second chapter, you begin to explore the transformations of the law after its passing um, in the 1930s. And this chapter is called Transcriptions of Power, uh, Repression and Rehabilitation in the Early Peace Preservation Law Apparatus, 1925 to 1933. So this sort of first several years and how the law is transformed once it's actually in place um, and being used on the ground. Um, So what was changing and how and why? So as the original drafters intended, the, the law uh, was applied to suppress groups um, initially that, that the state had identified as posing some kind of existential threat to the imperial state or to the imperial sovereign. Um, there were some poor applications, let's say, poor organizing in its application, and, and some trials did not proceed as, as uh, planned. But one of the first major applications of the law came with um, roundups of suspected Japanese Communist Party members in 1928 and 29. This netted over 8,000 suspected communists and, and most of the Central Committee of the Japanese Communist Party, actually. And this was actually an empire-wide roundup because it, it involved the consular police um, in China. It involved the, the, uh, the Japanese International Settlement in Shanghai. There, there was basically police activities throughout the colonies and whatnot um, rounding up uh, uh, suspected communists. So chapter two starts with looking at this and seeing how the law was being implemented as uh, intended as a legal instrument to suppress this political or ideological threat to the imperial state. At the time that the 8,000 plus had been arrested. There was an emergency imperial ordinance that was passed to revise the law. And what that did was it actually uh, extended the punishment for the alter the Kokotai infringement to death. It also added a clause about not only for those who are leaders of or forming an organization or joined an organization, but those also, quote unquote, furthering the aims of such an organization, i.e. these are the supporters of the JCP. And so with this revision, as well as the roundups, you see in the late 20s, basically the law being applied as it was intended to uh, uh, really be used as an instrument to suppress the the communist threat. Um, The title, Transcriptions of Power, of this chapter comes from the problem of, so we have 8,000 communists in detention, or suspected communists, let's say. And now the work begins of sitting down and interrogating them, trying to figure out what rank they were. Uh, Are they actual party members? Are they supporters? What form of socialism are they, you know, adherence to? Are they actual communists, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than just repression, now you have a process in which, uh, you know, the forming of some kind of knowledge or some kind of information to be used about this what the threat actually is now since it has been apprehended. And what the justice ministry uh, very quickly learns is that, you know, there's a few young rank and file who are willing to say that they don't actually really understand what Marxism or communist internationalism was. Um, There's a few that are willing to critique the party or uh, repent. At this time, they're using this term called kaishun to to express some kind of repentance for their activities with this illegal organization, etc. 
And so all of a sudden, not only at the time of the interrogation are you having the construction of this image of a thing called the thought criminal, but you also have within this population of detained thought criminals, uh, a few of them that are willingly uh, repenting. And so the transcription of power that, that I'm trying to understand here is, you know, if this law is intended to suppress this organization, how do rehabilitationary policies emerge from it. And it is from these interrogations. It is from these, uh, you know, two, three year long conversations that certain prison officials are having with detained communists to try and figure out their backgrounds. They find out their family situations. Uh, they're, you know, exploring if they feel any repentance for this. And what you start seeing is, is a certain development of, uh, reform policies, if if we understand reform at this time as the desire to nurture some kind of repentance for what they did, and it's not only just just that, but you have these extensive files being formed of of what this thing that is now being called thought crime, i.e., the motivations for why one would support the objectives of these groups, the Japanese Communist Party, first and foremost. Um, so it's how we get from that, basically, from from repression to these really incipient forms of uh, uh, nurturing repentance, of supporting those who reject the party, to coming to understand people's motivations, uh, to assisting those who are having psychological problems in jail for uh, defaming their families by being arrested, et cetera, et cetera. This shifts over into you know a different form of of power than just repression. It's, you know, now we're starting to get into, um, you know, what Foucault would call, uh, you know, disciplinary mechanisms. So that process of uh, turning from to be becoming a sort of, of disciplinary process uh, plays out further in uh, chapter three, um, when you're talking about the ways that uh, prisoners these, these former thought criminals uh, who are now uh, reformed or repentant, how, uh, the efforts to sort of uh, reintegrate them into society. Um, and one of the, the, the sort of primary case study you use here is the Imperial Renovation Society. Um, and you use this case study to look at the uh, what you call the network of rehabilitation groups that facilitated ideological conversion uh, of ex-communists and their reintegration into society um, during what a lot of historians call the period of conversion in the mid-1930s and on. Um, so tell us a little bit about the phenomenon of mass conversion um, and the efforts of groups like the Imperial Renovation Society uh, in the mid-30s and on. Sure. The, this is really the crux of the book. And, and going back to your first question about the inspiration for how I arrived at this project, this is um, you know, basically exploring the production of both the idea and the practice that becomes institutionalized of tenkol, of ideological conversion, which is, a, a again, a highly debated term in, in post-war scholarship about what it means, who practiced it, uh, to what degree did somebody convert, et cetera, et cetera. So it's in this chapter that I turned to the peace preservation law in order to try and think about where this term came from and the kinds of practices that it encapsulated. So when people turn to try and find, let's say, maybe the historical origin, for a lack of a better term, of the term Tenko being used to designate some kind of form of political defection or ideological conversion, it's commonly uh, pointed to that uh, two leaders of the Japanese Communist Party who had were arrested in those roundups that I had talked about in 28-29. They went through a sensational trial with the leadership of the JCP uh, and had been uh, sentenced um, and were sitting in jail. And in 1933, in June, uh, they publish a note uh, that has been kind of cultivated under the guidance of uh, some prison officials and a chaplain and, and whatnot, and where they say we were wrong. We actually, the Japanese Communist Party had been following the incorrect directives coming from Moscow. Moscow actually does not understand Japan and does not understand the Japanese working class. And so we call upon 
our comrades to break with the communist international and rethink some form of revolutionary politics of, uh, along national uh, lines. And it's a damning critique. And of course, it plays well with the officials uh, who very quickly uh, release it to the press who publish it on the morning of June 10th in 1933. So all the dailies uh, you know, carry the headlines of these infamous leaders of the Japanese Communist Party that they had already read about, you know, one or two years ago as the trials started, the sensational trials of the leadership of the Japanese Communist Party had at this point renounced and admitted their errors, right? Not only that, uh, just prison officials uh, distributed the letter to 600 plus of their comrades who were uh, either awaiting trial or who had been sentenced along with Sano and Nabayama. Uh, these are the leaders, Sano Manabu and Nabayama Sadachika, who had drafted this letter. Um, and so when scholars try to understand where Tenko comes from, they turn to this really sensational uh, critique, self-critique of the leadership uh, from the leadership in June 1933. The interesting fact is uh, Sano Manabu and Nabiyama Sadachika don't use the term Tenko in this letter, um, even though the authorities use it to describe what this signifies. This, for the officials, this signifies Tenko. And so this presents a certain problem. And this is what I was hoping to explore uh, and explain in the, this third chapter, which basically um, in it, I reveal that officials had already been using this term Tenko to mean something along the lines of a political defection, if not ideological conversion. Again, these are really loose terms. But there had been some experiences with this. And as I mentioned uh, when we were discussing Chapter 2, there had been earlier political criminals that expressed some kind of form of repentance, and this was coming under the category of Kaishun. By the early 30s, you start seeing justice officials who are now working with this imprisoned population of sentenced uh, Japanese communists. Um, and there, there, there's a few individuals that are defecting from the party. And not only are they defecting from the party, but they're also renouncing their belief in communist internationalism and Marxism's ability to understand Japanese capitalism and the imperial state, et cetera, et cetera. And you start seeing the term tenko being used uh, intermittently, uh, admittedly, in these official documents, but being used. By the time that Sano and Nabayama published their sensational uh, letter, uh, Breaking with the Party, um, or at least renouncing uh, the common turns directives, um, justice officials had become used to this term and thus used this term when to explain as they released this this letter to the to the to the mass press uh, on June 1933. And so the the question then becomes what what is being what are the practices or where is this actually coming from? How are officials uh, creating this thing? Uh, that is coming under the designation of, of Tenko. And there was a organization in Tokyo called the Imperial Renovation Society, or the Teikoku Koshinkai, which was established in 1926, not for political criminals, but just for those who were awaiting trial. So they had their indictments suspended, or those who having been charged with a criminal act, but had yet to go to prison. So they had their uh, sentences suspended temporarily would be released to this organization, the Imperial Renovation Society in Tokyo um, for normally a period of six months to see if before they go to trial, before they go to prison, if they can reform themselves. And again, this is not political criminals. This is, you know, petty criminals that show some kind of potential for reform. And this gets established in 1926. Now, the same officials who are overseeing this organization and experimenting with some kind of, uh, uh, you know, repentance or, or reform of regular uh, criminals within the Imperial Renovation Society are also working with the thought criminals that are now being apprehended under the peace preservation law in the late 20s. And sure enough, by the early 1930s, you have a few people who are working at the Imperial Renovation Society 
uh, overseeing the cases of some who are defecting from the Japanese Communist Party. And then uh, they get an invitation. Why don't you come to the Imperial Renovation Society to come work with us and, and maybe develop a way in which you can help your other comrades who are having uh, second guesses about uh, you know the possibility of communist revolution in Japan or uh, the common turns leadership of world revolution, et cetera, et cetera. So by 1932, you have some rank and file uh, people, and most notably a rank and file ex-communist by the name of Kobayashi Morito, who arrives after serving uh, a sentence for being a rank and file member of the Japanese Communist Party and who defected uh, the party um, uh, in late 1931, was released early and took up a position as a volunteer position at the Imperial Renovation Society in order to assist other rank-and-file comrades to break from the party. And he starts writing about his experiences, and he writes an autobiography under a pen name talking about you know how difficult the decision was and how he had arrived to some uh, kind of understanding of himself as an inherently Japanese, and that it was through the guidance of a Buddhist prison chaplain by the name of Fuji Eishol um, that he uh, really uh, came to understand his errors with uh, believing in the power of the Japanese Communist Party as well as uh, Moscow and uh, gave himself over to the graces of Buddha and returned to his essential uh, Japaneseness as an imperial subject. And so he starts writing these biographical essays in the Imperial Renovation Society. And uh, these now uh, form basically the, the format for how other rank and file communists who are going to be released to the Imperial Renovation Society are also going to start nurturing these conversions. Now, at this time, when he's writing, he's not using the term tenkel. He's using these other terms, reborns, I say, returning to his essential self or being saved or uh, these other terms. However, by the spring of 1933, and particularly with the Sano and Nabayama critique of June 1933, which then induces this whole cascade of defections. Once the leadership gives up, then you know all these other people, the rank and file, as well as other leaders, start questioning uh, the ability of the JCP to carry out a you know, communist uh, revolution in Japan. You have these forms, these autobiographical forms written by people like Kobayashi Morito to kind of explain this is what this process is. And, and now this, this term is called Tenko. This practice is, is Tenko. And it's really in groups like the Imperial Renovation Society that this phenomenon is nurtured. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I just wanted to give kind of the, the, the complicated history of where this term came from. Uh, it's kind of semantic ambiguity that it meant many different things to many different people, that it went through this experimentation in kind of a grassroots level, really, before the, the leadership of the JCP um, defected from the party or renounced the party or whatnot. So that 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 was the objective in, in Chapter 3. Yeah, and it's interesting how the... Um... You know, it's, it seems that you know, we're, we're sort of going through a, an, an evolution of sorts uh, with the way that, you know, these various concepts are both um, considered uh, um, and implemented. But I, I was sort of fascinated by this case study of the IRS, the, the Imperial uh, Renovation Society, um, because it has this um, non governmental um you know actor the the society itself uh playing this enormously important role in sort of pushing forward uh the meaning of tenkol and sort of how it's institutionalized um and that gets us to this sort of period of mass conversions and then in, in your fourth chapter uh which is called nurturing the ideological avowal uh toward the codification of tenko in 1936 you connect mass defections from the jcp in that period of mass conversion 1933-34 with subsequent justice ministry efforts to formalize a structure encouraging reform for political criminals 
Um, and this is a process that culminated in 1936 with the thought criminal protection and supervision law. Um, when you identify the growing use of what you call the tenets of imperial ideology to define ideological conversion, how's that significant? Um, how does it define uh, or redefine the imagined relationship between the state and thought criminals? Um, and this is another thing where you sort of relate it back to Foucauldian governmentality. Yes. So as probably listeners can tell, there's, there's a certain underlying format in how I'm thinking through this problem as far as, and, and, and it's, it's Foucauldian in many ways that basically once this law is on the books and it's used, it's supposed to, it's intended to be used as a, as an instrument to suppress, it produces its own problems. It takes on a life of its own. It starts changing organizationally. It starts drawing in other organizations that may not have, at least initially, had anything to do with the repression of uh, Japanese communists, um, whether this be Buddhist temples or whether this be employment agencies. But you know, once you're starting to worry about, oh, well, there's these people who have clearly defected from the party that no longer believe in this and they need to reintegrate back into society, of course, this is where the you know, the rehabilitation policies come from. Now with, you have this thing, Tenkel, that again, the term does not have a clear definition, uh, even when it's being used in 1933 to then uh, signify something like a, a defection or a ideological critique of communism, whether it's from the echelons of the JCP, i.e. Sano Manabu and Nabiyama Sadachika, or even the rank and file uh, communists like, uh, uh, you know, others who are at the Imperial Renovation Society. So with Tenkel, um, this is still approximating the original intention. This this is, in, in many respects, the organizational destruction of the Japanese Communist Party. Now, one could say, wasn't it their arrest and trial and the, you know, the imprisonment of the leadership, isn't that the organizational destruction? And to a certain extent it is. But once you now have this, this thing that we're going to be call, calling Tenko, that is now this technique that the state has really kind of nurtured and developed, um, that it had been experimented with in groups like the Imperial Renovation Society, and it al allowing members to identify in some way to break with the party to break with some kind of ideological or uh, aspirational kind of uh, connection with the party's aims, um, you know, for revolution or, or, or whatnot. Um, this then also produces its own problems. So a rank and file communist, uh, even if they went to trial, maybe if they were judged as not posing too much of a threat, they got a three-year jail term, much like Kobayashi Morito uh, did. Um, this was the person at the Imperial Renovation Society. They were going to be released. They were going to be released even if they professed Tenkel, ideological conversion, even if they wrote an official draft of a Tenkel statement. And these things are Tenkel Seime, which are these you know, official declarations, I hereby renounce the Japanese Communist Party, I no longer believe in the validity of Marxism, et cetera, et cetera, you know, which are performative, but they're also administratively, you know, uh, important as far as the administering of this population. But it still produces the problem of, so somebody has uh, served their full jail sentence, again, if it's a rank and file uh, you know, maybe three years if they're if they don't seem to pose any more problem, and they're going to go out into society. They've declared tenko. What does that mean? Does that just mean they broke with the party and they discarded with some kind of belief in international communism or Marxism or whatnot? And so, what you have is justice officials um, immediately starting to worry about the duration um, of tenko or the ability to fortify. This process for those who are now going out into a society, this is, you know, once the Great Depression has hit, uh, there's Japan has invaded and seized Manchuria in 1931. Uh, you have, you know, po rightist political assassins, you know, operating in Japan. You basically have like a very unstable uh, socio political economic situation, and you have these uh, political activists being released from jail. How do you fortify their break with this? Um, and so then you start seeing the process in which 
people start coming up with ways in which to develop some kind of ethos that without continued state oversight within prison or within an organization like the Imperial Renovation Society, that an individual will go out, reconnect with their family, uh, work in a factory or return to whatever uh, social station that they had come from, whether they're an intellectual or whether they were a farmer, whether they were an industrial worker, whether they were a student, and have some kind of ethos that will disallow for them to be convinced of supporting some kind of political radicalism that got them arrested in the first place. And this is why um, you increasingly see a turn towards the state's own ideological claims about its timelessness, about its benevolence, about its power, about its claims over its colonies, um, uh, etc. And and you start seeing these declarations, it's no longer about just discarding with party affiliation or belief, but now it's saying, I am a Japanese. Not only that, I'm an imperial subject. So when I work in society, I'm working for the nation. I'm working for the Kokutai. Uh, my family is a microcosm of the relationship that the emperor has with the national polity, the Kokutai, et cetera, et cetera. You start seeing these more direct declarations coming from ex-converts, of course, being guided by state officials to make these declarations, because this is now uh, getting into some some way that they can uh, fortify uh, their their break. And so this is this is why I see basically that the that the law and now its administrative policy of Tenko produce its own problems. That now the imperial state ideology is able to kind of. Uh, uh, you know, be be used as a way to provide meaning for what this means now that they have discarded with this earlier political belief and that now they're returning to society with some new ethos that's going to allow them to be productive uh, subjects within the imperial Kokutai. Yeah, so one of the other um, problems that you, uh, problems of the sort of you know, expansion of this Koktai ideology um, and the very specifically sort of imperial character that Tenko takes on. Um, one of the one of the other problems that you explore that's created by this is the problem of the colonies. Um, you look at the expansion of the ideological conversion system into colonial Korea in the 30s. So how did Tenko work within the political and ideological constraints of the Japanese empire um, and the sort of metropole higher, uh, colony hierarchy? So this is the I'm I'm quite clear in the book that although I touch upon the colonial situation that there's so much work that needs to be done both on just the application of the peace preservation law and the Tenko policy um but just on uh colonial Korea as well as just basically the Japanese empire and thinking about these legal systems and these ideological systems on an empire wide basis not just on national bases and so um, I, I touch upon this in various ways uh, in various chapters, um, but it really actually requires uh, much uh, further research. Um, here I'm drawing upon research by uh, Mizuno, Naoki, and others who have looked at the how the, the law was, again, the peace preservation law was interpreted differently in colonial Korea to be used against uh, suspected communists, but also anti-colonial nationalists. So then the question becomes, how do you define Kokutai in a legal sense to be applied for those who want national liberation, a return of national sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera, which is very different from the application uh, in metropolitan Japan, where it's being used against Japanese communists for uh, th- their threat to alter the Kokutai. Um this then also becomes a problem with Tenko. Now, there are Korean students and Korean workers uh, in Tokyo and, and other areas within metropolitan Japan that also worked with the Japanese Communist Party, joined the Japanese Communist Party. They saw this as uh, a first step that a revolution uh, in the imperial metropole is also you know, a first step towards the liberation of, of Korea, and they get caught within the roundups um, in the late 20s and early 30s. A few of them also uh, express a certain critique of the directives that are coming from the Communist International as well as the leadership of the JCP. And so they say, okay, 
I will defect from the party, uh, and I also renounce Marxism's ability to you know speak to the situation adequately. However, um, what starts to be noted by those people who are kind of managing this population of ideological converts, both ethnically uh, Japanese and uh, Korean, is that the you know Japanese converts say, "Well, I'm returning to some essential innate." subjectivity. I'm returning to my natural Japanese-ness, which is also at the same time uh, an imperial subjectivity, you know, some relationship to the emperor. In with Korean colonial subjects that have been arrested, they, they, they talk about this in their Tenko literature quite a bit, talking, well, I've discarded with Marxism, I've broken with the party, and I also recognize myself as a national of the Japanese empire, i.e. kokumin. However, I don't have an association with the Kokotai, you know, which for them is something that is, you know, at the core uh, uh, Japanese, right? Um, and so you get into this question of nationality versus ethnicity, uh, Kokumin versus Minzoku, uh, and how this operates within uh, Tenkel. Now, it, it should be said that all throughout the 30s, even though the Tenkel policy, once it had some successes within metropolitan Japan, it was also then implemented in colonial Korea, but to much less degree. So if if we're you know still working within the framework of thinking about the peace preservation law as a law that has a, both a repressive and rehabilitative side, um, the, you you see repression the, the repressive aspect of the law being used much more within uh, colonial Korea, and this is actually a problem that uh, justice officials are not unaware of, and it's in the late 30s that they start writing about saying. You know, we've had this great success with Tenko in Japan, but Tenko in in the colony seems to be something different. What is Tenko within the colony? How can we nurture it further um, among either self-identified communists or those that are just anti-colonial nationalists? What does it mean for a, a colonial Korean uh, Tenko shot to commit this, um, you know, within the empire? And so, you know, I, I look at this problem within. Uh, chapter four and chapter five. Once uh, Tenko gets um, uh, codified uh, within within the law, yeah, and that brings us to chapter five, which is called uh, the ideology of conversion. Tenko on the eve of total war. Uh, this ta- this chapter takes us into the years of the Second Sino-Japanese War, um, and in the chapter you look at how ideological conversion changes during wartime. Um, in addition to as you, you know the, these sort of colonial issues that you, you've talked about, um, and you argue that Tenko was initially linked to uh, uh, quote national thought defense and the spiritual renovation of the Japanese empire. Um, in other words, as you're putting it, ideological rehabilitation was um, in, described by proponents as a domestic bulwark in a so-called thought war. But on the other hand, by 1941, reform had given way, I guess, again yep. to detention, what they call preventative detention at that. Um, can you walk us through this trajectory, which I think, you know, the exigencies of war seem to have changed very much the way that uh, Tenko was being thought about and implemented. Sure. So the, there, there's a few different narrative strands or explanatory strands that, that, that combine within this chapter. On the one hand, what I wanted to do was to, and this is, it should be stated that this is the chapter in which those five stages of conversion that, that we started with talking about. Um, uh, this is basically 1937, a new law called the Thought Criminals Protection and Supervision Law is implemented. The Justice Ministry wanted this because they needed some kind of legal framework in which to now administer a whole population of thought criminals who were at some stage of going through ideological conversion, which includes also not converting whatsoever, the, i.e. the recalcitrant uh, you know, communists that, that were going to remain in jail. So how do we manage this? How do we streamline the system? And in 1936, late 1936, they passed this thought criminals protection supervision law. And this is what the document that we began with that Moriyama is the rehabilitation uh, chief of the rehabilitation bureau is outlining basically the five stages of conversion, which are now going to be implemented in this system. Moriyama's writing in 1937, early 1937. And so as this 
system is being put in place and experimented with. But in July, you have Japan's invasion of China. Uh, and this not only provides a context in which for ideological converts to demonstrate their return to imperial subjectivity, and this and this also includes um, Korean converts who are mobilizing in support of the Japanese effort in mainland China, but you know, few. Um, so, not only does this context and this and this basically this invasion, you know, provide a new means in which to fulfill this necessity within the law's logic, and particularly the logic of Tenko. How do we demonstrate to officials? That you know, not only have we broken with the JCP, not only have we discarded with our belief in Marxism, but how do we, you know, in Moriyama's uh, terms, quote unquote, how you know one who has mastered the Japanese spirit and is able to actively put it into practice? And so, from the law's perspective, and particularly for the ideological converse, this provides a context in which they can demonstrate now to their probation officers, uh, to their community, etc., that they, you know, no longer is there any kernel of a threat. Uh, not only that, but now I'm at the forefront of supporting the war effort. You know, I have truly grasped the Japanese spirit and I'm putting it in practice. And this is, you know, there's Tenkosha groups that are collecting war donations that are going out on the street and, you know, uh, professing support uh, for the war as, you know, one means in which to uh, act upon their ideological conversion. So that's one strand to think about it as far as the, kind of the culmination of this uh, process that I've been tracing in the, in the prior uh, chapters. On the other hand, too, what's interesting, um, and this is a connection that that I, I don't think has been made um, by others, that if internal to the own logic of the peace preservation law that went from first repressing uh, a organization with certain objectives, then to trying to nurture uh, the repentance or the defection of its members to then this thing called ideological conversion of them renouncing their ideological beliefs that led them to join or support the party to then, you know, mastering this Japanese spirit and putting the practice of everyday life. This actually provides a model for what we see in 38 and 39 uh, in the early years of the Sino-Japanese War, of what the government extends to the entire population. Now, there's no documents that say specifically that you know this is the model on which what was later called the National Spiritual Mobilization Campaign, which is the uh, what is that? That is the Kokumin Seishin Sodoin Undo, the movement to you know mobilize the national spirit, um, was modeled specifically on. Uh, these elements within the peace preservation law. However, Tenkosha groups immediately form their spiritual mobilization groups. They're at the, they're constantly claiming, just as the nation is awakening to this the necessity of purifying their thoughts and returning to their own spirit in order to fortify the nation against these ideological threats that are coming from abroad and being able to solve the the China incident, as it was called. Um. You know that you start seeing this rhetoric actually being extended to the general uh, population. Um, so this is why the book I conclude the book really in the early years of the Sino-Japanese War because I think this is really the culmination of this logic. Um, I extend my exploration a little bit into the 1940s because there's a revision of the peace preservation law in 1941. Now, of course, this is in the spring of 1941. This is uh, we're already uh, three plus years into uh, Japan's, uh, you know, quagmire uh, in the, in the Chinese mainland. It's also on the eve of the Pacific War, and there is uh, fears among officials that they need a new fortified peace preservation law to deal with domestic uh, and ideological threats during now a time of of war. Uh, and so in 1941, there's a, a massive revision of the peace preservation law. It extends into, I can't remember the exact number, something like 41 or 42 separate articles outlining all these various things. And one of the things that they add within that is a measure called the preventative detention system. And this is for recalcitrant political criminals who refuse to uh, repent 
refuse to discard their political affiliations or ideological uh, uh, beliefs, etc. And so how beyond the sentences that they had already been given, how do we legally hold them still in prison, not release them and keep them under surveillance, but literally how do we imprison them? Um, and this revision in 1941 allows that. And as you uh, hinted at uh, in your question, this is what I believe to be kind of a return of the peace preservation law to its original repressive uh, function. And this is because by this time, the spiritual mobilization that had been cultivated within the ideological conversion policy has now been spread to the entire population, or is at least, you know, is now constituting, you know, the rhetoric that one sees in everyday life, you know, whether one was a political criminal or not, you know, being called upon to fortify your spirit and um, cleanse yourself of Western influences and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's where the, uh, the chapter concludes. Yeah. Um, and then finally, in the epilogue, you talk about the transwar legacies of the peace preservation law, which I guess, you know, given the, the, the way that we've we've just been talking about how it kind of makes a, a that the whole Tenko system uh, makes a turn back toward the peace preservation law um, in the 40s is, um, to put it mildly, a little bit troubling to me. And if I understand correctly, this is also, um, and I'm sort of combining two questions here, this is also, uh, this question of trans-war legacies is also part of the project that you're working on currently. So if you'd like to tell us about that as well, that'd be great. Sure. The the trans-war legacies, I mean, there's many. Um, and this actually, in, in, a, in many ways, is returns us to your very first question of basically what sparked my interest in Japan in the first place, which is um, basically to understand uh, the situation, intellectual, political, socioeconomic, cultural in the 20s and 30s, and and basically understand the question of fascism and its particular articulation within uh, Japan um, at this time is specifically through uh, the scholarship that has been written about and debated over terms such as kokutai, the appearance of kokutai, uh, the appearance of uh, imperial ideology in the 1930s to mobilize the population, and particularly this question of tenko. Um, so one of the afterlives of the of this peace preservation law system is that tenko becomes one of the primary lenses through which scholars, post-war scholars, look back to the 1930s to try and figure out what happened. Uh, one, why was there not any resistance to the rise of militarism and fascism? How could uh, so many detained communists actually so quickly uh, give up uh, their communist affiliations, um, et cetera, et cetera? And so this this book is basically in, in its entirety a way to kind of engage with that literature, one that both sparked my own interest uh, in Japanese history, but I'm hoping to actually intervene uh, in these debates um, as well by showing, you know, basically these complex histories of where these you know, these kinds of terms come from. One of the things that I'm working on now, and this is something that I haven't seen anything written about in uh, primarily English, but it's also been somewhat muted in the Japanese scholarship as well, is that almost immediately after Japan's defeat in 1945 and under Allied occupation, you have, of course, a complete purging of the quote-unquote special higher police. This is the thought police. Um, uh, any, any groups that were seen as uh, suppressing politics or repressing uh, you know, belief or these kinds of things were, were purged in the early years of the occupation. What's interesting is a lot of the justice ministry officials who were overseeing the prosecution of political criminals as well as manage their files once they are in prison, i.e. the people who are actually coming up with the, the policy of Tenko, actually remain within the system. Um, very few of them were purged. There was a voluntary purge within the justice ministry, but it was only really of some you know, key uh, officials. Uh, and it was really symbolic in that way. But um, So the justice ministry was quite concerned that you know, in the turbulence of you know, post-defeat occupied Japan, uh, that there's got to be a system in which to um, reform basically 
uh, a population of criminals, and there's you know there's huge arrests in '45 and '46 in these dire socioeconomic uh, situations. These aren't political criminals. This is you know um, what we think of just as you know basically social or economic crime, right? Um, and so they start instituting and re-implementing many of the reform policies that were developed in the 20s and 30s, starting with delinquency, so youth delinquency, uh, rehabilitation policies, which then immediately gets extended to adult offenders, um, suspending their sentences so they can, if they're showing some form of rehabilitation, establishing some kind of you know, economic uh, employment training, reconnecting people to families, et cetera. And the interesting thing is, and, and something that I'm working on now is just to consider what it means that the first time that such policies, the, so the suspension of indictment or the suspension of sentence policies, the first time that they were applied to adults was with the Thought Criminals Protection and Supervision Law in 1936. In the post-war, this becomes a huge symbol of the liberalization and the democratization of the Japanese justice system. And it's in the English literature as well. It's, it's really celebrated as this really humane and reform based way in which to deal with criminal justice. It's not, you know, retribution against the criminal, but it's the ability that the criminal can reform, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really, you know, seen as this kind of liberal, uh, you know, a sign of uh, Japan's ability uh, to, you know, for liberalization and democratization in, in the post-war uh, under allied uh, guidance. However, the thing that is constantly left out of that narrative is that, again, the first time that adult offenders uh, ex- were, were, any of these policies were extended to adult offenders were the political criminals. And that a lot of the first, um, you know, the extension of uh, criminal reform to, and a lot of the policies were based on basically the reform of political criminals. And by the late 30s, what you have is justice officials celebrating that it's the thought criminals that really provide this example that reform works, that we can extend this to you know, all criminals in all capacities. And by 1939, you have a Judicial Protection Services Act, um, et cetera, which, you know, there's a continuum between these things that I'm going to be arguing in this new uh, work that, you know, on the one hand, of course, the politics is muted. This is not against political criminals in the 40s and 50s. Um, However, you know, what does it mean that these um, now celebrated policies of reforming uh, criminal offenders uh, were first implemented and then their success is celebrated by, you know, through the political criminal apparatus or the thought crime apparatus. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I think it's a, a going to be a great contribution to sort of some of the ways that we're, you know, as, as Japanese historians trying to uh, rethink the whole question of continuities and discontinuities across that, um, especially ideological and sort of institutional continuities um, across the boundary of 1945. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing the work when it comes out and hopefully uh, having you back on the podcast soon. Uh, oh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I've really enjoyed talking with you about your book. Yeah, thank you for uh, giving the giving me this opportunity, and thank you for your your really really good uh, questions. Great. Well, thanks so much. Take care. Yeah. Thank you, Nathan. Mm-hmm.